Well, good morning. Good-looking bunch this morning. Well, first off, let me introduce myself. My name is Terry Lenstra. Uh, you may recognize me as one of the volunteer music leaders here at Hope. Uh, I'll provide you with a little information about who I am. I was born and raised in Dubuque, Iowa. I am a Dubuquer. I know how to play euchre. I'm not good at it. And I do know the two food groups, which are coffee and the turkey and dressing sandwich. I had one this week. It was delicious. Um, I graduated from Dubuque Senior High School in 1982. On August 25th of 1984, at a city park in Platteville, uh, Wisconsin, I placed my faith and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. On May 3rd, the second greatest thing that ever happened to me happened, and I married uh, my wife, Julie. Uh, that was back in 1985. Shortly after we married, we moved to Wisconsin, which is second only to Iowa as God's country. I uh, lived in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, and then moved to Janesville, Wisconsin. In 1993, uh, Julie and I moved back to Dubuque. Uh, I was able to purchase uh, my grandmother's old house, which is actually the house my parents lived in when I was born. So I've basically come full circle. You can go back home again. Um, currently, I'm working on finishing my Certificate of Biblical Studies at Emmaus. I'm a credit and a half short. One of the half credits was called Dorm Life. I said, listen, I got a beautiful house that's 20 minutes away. I ain't living in your dorms. So anyway, I'm working on that. In May of 2008, Julie and I began attending um, Hope Church here. And uh, I currently serve with the music ministry, and I attend Celebrate Recovery. Uh, Julie and I have been involved with a great small group since September of 2008. Actually, it was really neat. I got to chat with my small group after last service, and one of them said, I was about ready to stand up and go, yeah! I said, that would have been fine if you did. That would have been fine. That, that's okay. So, but at this time, I'd like to thank Hope Church uh, for allowing me the opportunity to speak this morning. And also, I want to remind you that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. So please today thank a pastor... Uh, thank also those people who are on the staff at church and do a lot of work. Uh, Hope Church is really an awesome church. So, uh, This morning, I want to start my sermon with my key verse. And you'll find it there in your bulletins. It's Acts 1.8. And it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we as a church are going to be looking at the book of Acts. My goal today is to give you a better understanding of the book of Acts and the person of Peter. Um, the book of Acts, the author of the book of Acts is Luke, who is also the same author of the Gospel of Luke. Actually, the book of Acts is kind of like a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Um, we can find out who the writer is in the book of Acts by looking at the opening verse, verse which says... In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The term first book that is mentioned in this verse is the Gospel of Luke. And the Theopolis that's mentioned in this verse is the same most excellent Theophilus in the Gospel according to Luke. Now let me give you a side note. The term most excellent refers to Theopolis' standing in society. Some scholars believe that Theopolis was a person of high social standing, and the term most excellent was a title before his name, much like we would call somebody a doctor or a professor or, or, or a reverend. Of course, the first time I read the term most excellent Theophilus, 
I just thought Theophilus was this rad dude who wore van slip-on shoes and did rail grinds and backflips on his longboard. If you don't understand that talk with Pastor Darrell, he will explain the whole skate culture of Southern California. Now, let's get back to my sermon. A very important aspect of the book of Acts that I want to communicate today is that the book of Acts was written as a narrative of the events in the early church. It's an in-depth look into what happened in the early church and to the followers of Christ. The book of Acts is almost like a baby book for the early church. You know, if moms know what a baby book, you know, you know, junior's first tooth, junior's first piece of hair, you know, stuff like that. That's what the book of Acts is pretty much like. It's, hey, this is what happened in the early church. It's a narrative explanation. Because it is a narrative explanation, the book of Acts should not be viewed as a blueprint for how the church should operate today. Now, the reason I say this is because on more than a few occasions, I've heard very well-meaning individuals say to me, oh my gosh, the way the church is going nowadays, I just wish we could go back to the book of Acts and how they did church back then. Well, there's two things people fail to realize when they say that. The first is, in the book of Acts, you had well-intentioned followers of Christ telling people, well, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. There was a lot of erroneous teaching in the early church. The second thing about the book of Acts is the communal setting that you read about. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it instruct us to do church in a communal setting. The Bible does tell us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give shelter to the homeless, But the Bible does not instruct us to sell everything, move into a big old house with a bunch of people, and share all our earthly possessions with anyone who asks. Now, many people live in communal settings, and they enjoy that. But there are many people who have come out of a communal setting who can tell you stories that are less than favorable. Now, a lot, another thing, too, about the early church, it wasn't some happy, happy, joy, joy club. It was messy. It was chaotic. It was confusing, it was complicated, and it was difficult. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, we see kind of the first rift of the early church. And it's about a dispute about how the Hellenistic widows were being fed. Um, In the early church, in the book of Acts, they actually set up a feeding program, and they set it up for a lot of the people who had come to Jerusalem. And You know, they had sold all their possessions, they had sold all their fields, and they gave it to the disciples, and now they were just kind of hanging out in Jerusalem. Well, you got to feed people, so they set up a feeding program, and the first dispute in this was as some people were saying, well, uh, the Hellenistic Jews, those widows aren't being taken care of. So the apostles got together, they had a powwow, and they had a meeting, and they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to appoint some people to take care of that, because we're busy reading and preaching and teaching. Now, The first time I read that, I went, who are these guys that it's below them to serve food? But as you look into it, you realize that the the apostles that were in the early church were really the only people who were qualified to preach and teach in the early church. Do you realize that in Hope Church, we have more people who are qualified to preach and teach the gospel than the early church had in Jerusalem? So that's why these guys were spending all their time working on preaching and teaching. (sighs) 
Moving along, the theme of the book of Acts is a book of transitions. In chapters 1 through 7, we read about the transition of Peter and the apostles. In chapters 8 through 28, we read about the transition of Saul, who is later renamed Paul. Now, Paul is the man who wrote many of the New Testament epistles, but today I want to focus on the apostle Peter. Peter was a loud, obnoxious, impulsive, brash, talk-first, think-later type of guy. Peter would rather punch you in the head than listen to you. That's who Peter was. But Peter was a man who was a sinner. And Peter was transformed by his time with Christ. In Luke 5.8, we read about Peter's first encounter with Christ. Peter realizes that he is a sinner and that he is in the presence of the Lord. It's, it's a time where Christ tells him, you know, hey, have you caught any fish? Peter goes, nah, I haven't gotten anything. Now throw your nets over the other side. Peter's like, I can't lose much. Throws the net over, all of a sudden he gets all this fish and he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of a great man. And he gets down on his face and he says, I'm a sinner. Jesus, that's all right. That's right, Peter. I know you're a sinner. I know you're a sinner. This is the first of many transactions that Peter has with Jesus. Now, Peter didn't become some super saint after this first meeting, after this first experience with Christ. Instead, Peter's transformation was a day-in, day-out affair. It was over an extended period of time. This transformation was at times daunting. Peter had issues and problems. And these issues and problems just didn't disappear because Jesus was around. Even though Peter confessed Jesus as his Savior, he was not perfect. A couple of stories that we can read about Peter in the Gospels. It was Peter who jumped out of the boat during the storm and walked on the water. While the other disciples were freaking out, it was Peter who recognized Jesus. Now, when I read Scripture, I tend to read it in a a more of a, a Terry way, you know, where... I don't read it like in high English where and the apostles were upon the seas and they saw a great apparition upon the waters and they were fearful. That's great. I, I don't get that. I kind of read it my way where I go, and the disciples were out in their boat going across the water and all of a sudden they noticed something and they went, oh my, I think that's a ghost. But Peter said, you know what? You, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. It isn't a ghost. It's Jesus. Watch this. Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come. And, of course, Jesus is walking on the waters, and he goes, Come on, Peter. So Peter does a little get out of the boat. Watch this! <laughs> walking on water. <laughs> Look at me, I'm walking on water. But then Peter realizes the waves around him, and he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me! And Jesus reaches down and grabs his hand, Oh, ye of little faith. You know, there was probably many of those times where Jesus just looked at Peter and went, Oh, ye of little faith. Another time that we read about Peter is when he was criticizing Jesus because Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be crucified. And and in this scene, we see Peter taking Jesus by the arm and going, come come here, come here, Jesus, Jesus, come here. Jesus, you know, this death thing, you know, I I can deal with it, but Bart and Thaddeus over there, they're kind of scaredy cats anyway. Maybe you shouldn't talk about this whole death thing. But what what does Jesus do? He says, "Get get me behind me, Satan. You know, I've got a purpose. I've got a job to do, and you're not going to dissuade me from it. Another time we read about Peter and sort of his actions is at the transfiguration. Uh, It's 
uh, James, John, and Peter go up the mountain with Jesus because Jesus wants to go up to the mountain to pray. Of course, they get to the top of the mountain and the apostles are tired. You ever notice the apostles slept a lot? In the, and you ever notice that, you know, at their last supper, hey, let's go to the garden, they're asleep. Hey, let's go up in the mountain, they're asleep, you know. Obviously, there were some issues there with But anyway, at the transfiguration, what happens is James, John, and Peter wake out of their sleep and they see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And they're in this transfigured glory. There's like this glow around them. And James and John both see it, and they're just like awestruck. It's like one of those, ah, moments for them. Not for Peter. Peter wakes up and goes, oh, man, I got this great idea. Jesus, what we're going to do is we're going to build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have people come up here so they can worship. We could sell T-shirts. Uh, we'll have a coffee bar with books. It will be awesome. And it's at this moment where a cloud comes upon them, and the voice of the Heavenly Father says, This is my son, listen to him. You ever think God has one of those facepalm moments, you know? Here's Peter trying to tell him, and it's just God in heaven going, This is my son, listen to him. That's how I could see it with God. So, and, at, and one of the last times that Peter is really having an issue with things and just not getting it is at the Last Supper. Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And he comes to Peter, and Peter says, You're not washing my feet. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. So Peter says, okay, if you're going to wash my feet, I want my hands and my head because, you know, they got that special running today. Get your feet washed, hands and heads free. And Jesus just like, Peter, 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 Peter. Peter was just always just kind of messing things up. Peter, was one of the, Peter is one of those guys that reminds me of the old saying, life is tough. It's even tougher if you're stupid. Now, there are two pivotal moments in Peter's life that brought about drastic change. The first one can be found in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Jesus and the apostles are eating on the beach. This is after the resurrection. Um, it's in the time frame between the resurrection and before Christ ascends into heaven. And once again, the apostles are out fishing, and they haven't caught any fish. And you ever notice they were horrible fishers also? They were just, any story you read, they didn't catch any fish. Oh my gosh, how do these guys make a living? So they're out there on the seas, and they didn't catch any fish, and Jesus goes, hey, guys, you catch anything? And they're like, no. Hey, throw your nets over on this side. They throw their nets over, and they get a big, a big mess of fish. And all of a sudden, Peter goes, it's Jesus. So Peter takes off his outer garment and jumps in the water because he's going to swim to shore because he's not going to wait for the boat to get there, because that's Peter. Then we see the scene where everyone's sitting around the fire, and they're eating. Promise that uh, we, uh, Jesus is making some fish on the fire, and he looks at, looks at Peter and goes, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus goes, feed my sheep. A couple of minutes later, Jesus looks at Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like going, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my flock. A couple of minutes later, Peter, do you love me? By now, Peter's getting, you know, a little, dis you know, discouraged or angry. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. You know, feed my sheep. It was at this, this is one of these great transitions where the Lord is reminding Peter, you know, you denied me three times, but I know you love me, and I love you too, and I have a work for you. Now, the second pivotal moment for Peter can be found in the second chapter of the book of Acts, and it was the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Peter. In the second chapter of Acts, we read about how Peter and others were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of this feeling 
was that the gospel was preached to devout Jews from every nation. And each heard the gospel in his native tongue. Now, an event like this had never happened before. And the people who were there were amazed. In fact, some people were saying, um, what's going on? And there was a few in the crowd saying, oh, those guys are just babbling because they're drunk. Which I could never figure that out either because, you know, usually if a person's inebriated, you don't understand what they're saying. But anyway, it's Peter who steps out and says, these men are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And then Peter gives one of the greatest sermons. It is the first evangelistic sermon, and it is grounded in Scripture. It is life-changing. It helps people to just connect with the gospel. You know, and all I can think of is, this is Peter. If somebody said, okay, pick one of the apostles to give the first evangelistic message to the church in the New Testament, who would you pick? James and John would be a better bet, you know. You don't hear much about Thaddeus, so he would probably be a good guy. I wouldn't pick Peter because for some reason that guy is just going to drop the ball. But no, here we see Peter is delivering the message, is, is giving that message because of this pivotal transformation of the Holy Spirit work in his life. Now, a side note, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is a sermon in itself. However, today I just want to say this. The Holy Spirit is given to every follower of Christ the moment he or she places their faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. What the Holy Spirit does is empower the follower of Christ to live a life that brings glory to God by guiding, by teaching, and by changing the heart of that follower of Christ. Now, the result of Peter's sermon is nothing less than miraculous. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. 3,000. Nowadays, people get excited if you have 3,000 people respond to an altar call. But this wasn't just a response. This was an added to the church. Can you imagine if Hope Church had 3,000 people join the church in one day? We'd have to rent the entire Grand River Center. And of course, if we're going to have a party, we're going to have food. And if we're going to have to get food, Pastor Darrell's going to have to call in the order. And what's that going to look like? It's going to look a little like this. Hello, Papa John's. I need some pizzas. You ready? I need 400 sausage, 400 pepperoni, 200 Canadian bacon, 100 veggie, and 25 cheese pizzas. Oh, by the way, can we get some of those cheesy breadsticks? Hello, Hy-Vee. I need about 250 cheese trays. How long is that going to take? Okay, okay. Hello, Starbucks. I need about 5,000 cups of coffee. Can you, can you set me up with that? Okay, great, great, great. That's how big of a crowd the 3,000 added to the church would be. Now, back to the sermon. Peter was changed by this infilling of the Holy Spirit, and that change was necessary because God was going to use Peter to bring the gospel message to the Gentiles. Now, the gospel being preached to an audience that was not Jewish was a revolutionary idea. You see, the popular thought of the day was that God was only interested in the Jewish people. If you weren't a Jew, God didn't care about you. That's, that was the thought of the day. However, this belief was wrong. Uh, God was concerned about the Gentiles well before this day. In Psalm 67, we read, uh, verse 2, it says, "...that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations." In verse 3, it says, let all peoples praise you. 
In verse 5, it says, let the peoples, let all the peoples. In verse 6, it says, the earth. In verse 7, it says, let all of the earth fear him. In this one psalm, it is saying, let all of the earth, all of the peoples, all of the nations fear God and know God. Now, God did set apart the Jewish people. He did call them the apple of his eye. He did call them his people. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, was a Jew. He was born and raised a Jew. However, our relationship with God was never intended to be based upon our nationality or upon our heritage. It was never meant to be based upon our birth order or good works or social standing. Our relationship with God is based upon the needs and desires and the hopes of the individual. You see, the gospel is for everyone. Let me give a little perspective about what I've said. In some cultures, it's quite normal to have arranged marriages. And I'm sure there's some fathers here today who would like to have arranged marriages for their daughter too. Let me just say, you're probably not going to work. It's legal, but it's probably not going to work. But anyway, in an arranged marriage... What happens is one family sits down with another family and they say, we want our daughter to marry your son. And so they go about putting about the arrangements of the marriage together. Sometimes this happens when children are very young. Sometimes it happens merely months before the marriage happens. But in either setting, the people being married have little to no say in the whole arranged marriage. In other words, they are being married minutes, especially, you know, in whims of other individuals. Now, can you imagine a relationship with God based upon the whims and wishes of others? Sadly, some people are in a relationship with God based upon whims and wishes of others. There are certain groups that that teach people need to do good works to earn heaven. There's other people who say, if you live our moral code, you'll get your own little slice of heaven. And then there's churches that say, if you leave our church, you're going to hell, straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Get on the elevator, push the button H for hell, because that's where you're going. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Let me paraphrase that a little bit for you. The term God so loved the world refers both to Jew and to Gentile. And I'm here to say today, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're either one or or the other here this morning. The phrase that he gave his only son, his son is Jesus Christ. And why did he give him? So that whoever, whether they are Jew or Gentile, believes And that word believes is a deep word. It means has a relationship with Jesus based upon their need to have their sins forgiven with the hope to be free from the bondage of sin and the desire to love God, which is demonstrated by being a passionate follower of Jesus, which is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. The term should not perish means be eternally separated from God. And the term but have eternal life means a life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, someone may say, that may work for you, Terry, but if I choose to become a follower of Jesus, then what about me? You know, because so much, so many people, it's about me. You know, it's all about me. It's kind of interesting. I finally got on Facebook and joined the 21st century this past year. Um, 
long story. We haven't got time for it. And I get on Facebook, and I look at some stuff, and it's cute, and it's fun. But a lot of it's, hey, this is about me. You know, or hey, this is, this is a little bit about my life. And some of it's cute, and some of it's fun. But some of it's like, oh, my, you really are kind of full of yourself, you know. And, and we battle a lot with that. But let me say this. You know, if you're not going to choose to serve Jesus, you will serve someone. You will serve somebody. You will serve something. That is a fact of life. Something in life will get your attention for worship. Something in life will be your driving force. I think Bob Dylan said it best when he said, you might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor or sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Today I would like to end with a couple of questions. First, do you trust in your goodness to get you into heaven? Please realize that the best you can do is nowhere good enough to get into heaven. It's like trying to reach the moon by jumping. Now, if LeBron James and I were standing both here and we said, let's jump to the moon, LeBron James is going to get a lot closer to the moon than I am. But neither of us are going to reach the moon because in order to get to the moon, we need something greater than ourselves. And that's what Jesus is. He is something greater than ourselves. And that's, what, that's how we get into heaven. Second, do you trust in your lineage? One day we will stand before God and we will have to give an account of what we have done. We won't be able to stand before God and say, my dad was a minister, my family went to church every Sunday, my grandmother was a saint. These all may be true, but a relationship with God is not based upon what others do, but what you do. Third, who or what is your center of worship today? What is that driving force in your life? Is it Jesus? Is it sports? Is it your job? Is it a car? I'm not saying that you, you can't like sports and like a car and like your job, but it can't be the driving force of your life. And finally, what is stopping you from trusting in Christ with your life? You know, as the worship team comes back to the stage, I'm going to close in prayer. But before I do, I want to encourage you this morning by saying this. If today is the day you want to trust Jesus, please talk with one of our prayer partners over on the side. You could talk with a pastor. You can even talk to me. If talking isn't an option for you, please contact the church. We have, you can call us by phone, by email, by fax. There is a way to talk to us. So we would love to hear from you. At this time, let's all stand and pray. Father God, we are Peter. We would drown out of faith as we walked upon the water. Father God, sometimes we're loud, we're brash, we talk first, listen later. But Father God, we know that you love us. Jesus, we know that you love us. Right now, we just say, I surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.